0: You're listening to Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs, the podcast, our audio supplement to the blog of the same name about the science, art, and popular culture of Mesozoic life. I'm Nati. I'm a Pistocetocordia's head.
1: Really? Well, then I am a Nymectosaurus's body. In episode 12, I'm
0: tempted to take a leaf out of Niels' book and say that as our guest this month needs no introduction, he shan't be getting one. But it would be remiss of me not to say a few prefatory words about Darren Naish, zoologist, paleontologist, author, illustrator, science communicator, creator of the Tetrapod Zoology blog, podcast, and conference, beloved by all self-respecting natural history enthusiasts whose litany of works, quite frankly, makes one's head spin. Darren will be joining Mark for an interview later. Before that, our vintage dinosaur art title this month is What is a Dinosaur? Written by Daniel Q. Posen and illustrated by Mighty Weber, published by Benefic Press in 1961. But first. When is a four-legged snake not a snake? Well, in this instance, when it turns out to be a mosasauroid. Is that not so, Niels? Uh,
1: yeah, you're very close uh, to the money there. You might remember a Tetrapod from being described a few years ago back in uh, 2015. The name, as you say, literally means four-legged snake, which is uh, pretty much exactly what it is, except it isn't. The uh, origin of snakes is actually very hotly debated. Um, There is a camp that argues for a burrowing origins and a camp that argues for an aquatic origins for snakes. And uh, as you might imagine, they are not on speaking terms. What we do agree on, however, is that snakes evolved from four-legged lizards. So yeah, it was pretty cool and unusual to find a snake that still had all of its limbs. Uh, Other Mesozoic snakes like Najash only have their hind limbs left. Tetrapodophis is an earlier animal than that, uh, from the early Cretaceous, and it seems to fill in the blank uh, quite nicely. And tetrapodophis was tentatively suggested to be a burrowing animal. Except, except, a new paper in Taylor and Francis, Open Access, argues that we are not looking at an early danger noodle, but instead an early mosasaur, or something close to it anyway. Michael Caldwell at al. have now placed tetrapodophis in Dolichosauridae, a side group to snakes, and closer to the base of the mosasaurs. Uh, key features that point to this include the long snout, the shape of the teeth, and the, hold on to your butts, intramandibular joint, which functions very differently between snakes and mosasaurs. Uh, Caldwell et al. suggests that tetrapodophis was an aquatic predator just like the mosasaurs. Now, um, this isn't really an earth-shattering shift. We know that snakes and mosasaurs are pretty closely related anyway, but instead of snakes, tetrapodophis now gives insight in the evolutionary history of the mosasaurs, which of course became the big sea predators in the late Cretaceous. Link to the paper is in the show notes. This does, unfortunately, bring the number of four-legged snakes we have down to zero. So the debate <laughs> continues.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much, Niels. Uh, Mark, a toothless ceratosaurian oddity. Uh, not you, but I believe you have news of one. <laughs>
2: uh, so this is in Nature Scientific Reports and therefore is open access. So any... They
0: didn't mean it. You're not toothless.
2: <laughs> Indeed not. By far too many teeth, they cost me lots of money. Um, this is the first edentulous ceratosaur from South America, as I said, published in nature scientific reports and therefore open access by, uh, uh, D'Souza et al. You have to keep my pronunciations throughout this because, um, yeah, <laughs> but anyway, uh, the animal is Bertha Soura Um, it is named after, and this is very interesting, uh, Bertha Maria Julia Lutz, um, which for her scientific contribution and social activity, particularly regarding women rights or women's rights in Brazil. Um, and the Leopoldinae comes from both the first Brazilian empress, um, Ria Leopoldina, and also uh, a Samba school that contributed to um, the carnival in 2018 with a museum theme. And so it was before the museum got burned down, very sadly, uh, as is noted in the paper. Anyway, this is an extremely interesting theropod because uh, it kind of looks a bit like Lemosaurus, um from China, of course, which is another toothless probably herbivorous ceratosaur, known from a few different um, individuals at uh, different ontogenetic stages was actually.
1: that the one that uh where the juveniles still had their teeth but the adults had lost it or am i confusing it with another one? yes
2: exactly right so the juveniles had teeth and the adults had lost it um this individual this berthosaurus specimen is actually remarkably complete they found a lot of it and because it was so complete, they were able to compare it with the various specimens of uh, Limosaurus, as well as obviously other ceratosaurs, and the different ontogenetic stages of Limosaurus. There is the caveat that it may have obviously grown up differently. It's, the ontogenetic stages may be different between these two taxa. However, comparing the two, they say that this is most likely a sub-adult, so not a really young juvenile of the kind that had teeth in Limosaurus, but not not quite an adult either. It still has some growing to do. And yet it's toothless. So they posit that this animal was actually uh, toothless at an earlier stage in its growth, a uh, younger age than Linosaurus. Um It may even have been toothless from birth, which is quite a development. And not only toothless, but with a beak, or well, has adaptations remarkably similar to the beaks of other herbivorous dinosaurs and even tortoises and <laughs> turtles. It's another remarkable example of convergent evolution. Not only that, but their phylogenetic analysis reveals that the two, well, sorry, uh Berthosaurus and Lumosaurus aren't actually that closely related, which implies that toothlessness and in fact involving a toothless beak has evolved more than once in Ceratosaurs. So yeah, um, tiny hands, toothless beak, uh, lived in Brazil. <laughs> it's, uh, it's proper strange. And, yeah, quite remarkable. And, and it's amazing how much of it they found. Oh, there's also a, a, a life reconstruction in the
0: yeah.
2: back. Yeah. We, we always like that. Um, And looking very nice. It reminded me of um, when people thought that Troodon might be some kind of aberrant carnivorous Ornithischian. Particularly this life reconstruction really hits at home. It's like, hang on a minute, this is a bit like a kind of, uh, well, a Ceratosaur trying to be an Ornithischian. <laughs> In fact, rather than a... Uh, oh, right. A, r- r- rather than ornithischian being a theropod, just yeah. like a theropod trying to be an ornithischian. Exactly. It's um, utterly strange. Um, and it's amazing how much how much our understanding of ceratosaurs has come on in just the past 30 years. Absolutely. Going from only a handful of uh, taxa to all these different abelosaurs and freaks like this <laughs> and all sorts of things.
0: So, yeah, amazing stuff. Thank you. That's wonderful. Um, finally, then... Uh, the latest in the recent string of newly described dinosaurs from the Isle of Wight, an ornithopod this time. Hooray! Uh, Brystonius simonsi, an iguanodont from the early Cretaceous Wessex formation is one of the happier things to emerge out of lockdown, having come to the attention of Jeremy Lockwood uh, a retired medical doctor studying for a PhD who decided to spend the period cataloguing every iguanodon bone on the Isle of Wight It passes the time it certainly does. <laughs> it was the distinctive bulbous nasal bone, among other features, that set its skull apart. And Mr. Lockwood, working with doctors David Martill and Susanna Maidman, determined that the fossil was neither Iguanodon benisartensis nor Mantellisaurus adaviodensis, the two known Iguanodons from the isle, but its own genus. Named after the village of Bryston on the Isle of Wight, close to the excavation site where it was discovered, and for Keith Simmons, the amateur paleontologist involved in the discovery and collection of the specimen, Uh, the paper by Lockwood, Martill, and Maidment is published by Journal of Systematic Paleontology and is open access. And uh, the accompanying artwork is fittingly by none other than uh, Le Grand Seigneur of Paleoart, John Sibick. King of Uh, the Isle of Wight. Indeed. <laughs> uh, the illustration um, is for me curiously reminiscent of the famous 1849 study of the mummified dodo head by Joseph Dinkel. Um, you might be able to to
1: see those similarities as well. I wonder when they're going to be done uh, splitting everything off from iguanodon. Never. Probably not anytime soon, I should
0: imagine.
2: Yeah, I mean, this I don't think it's really been split off because I, this thing was never... It was just basically thrown in a big box, wasn't it? Like, um, this is probably Iguanda on, right. filed away. Yes. What happens to so many things at the NHM? And then someone turns it up a bit later and goes, actually, that's probably not go on. It's like, wow.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Who knew? Uh, on to our Vintage Dinosaur Art book.
1: <laughs> vintage Dinosaur art.
0: What is a Dinosaur? Written by Daniel Q. Posen and illustrated by Mighty Weber. Uh, To my shame, I was ignorant of Weber previously, and I owe her introduction once again to you, Niels, and uh, to the short video which you linked us to, made by Emily Grassley for Brain Scoop. And uh, Mighty Weber should have been a familiar name, given that she was one of the successors to Charles Knight as the resident artist at the Chicago Field Museum.
1: Yeah, I I had no idea either until I saw that video by Emily. But um as a result of that video I um I did track one of the books down. Um I understand that it isn't the only one she illustrated. This this is an interesting one because she was the uh artist-in-residence at the Field Museum. She started in 1951, which is the very year she immigrated from Germany to Chicago. She was apparently hired enthusiastically on the spot the moment they met her, and she remained artist-in-residence at the Field Museum for over 10 years. Uh, This is a book she produced in 1961, when she was still working for the Field Museum, she resigned there in 1962, after which point her trail ends. I have no idea what she went on to do. So this book, yeah, written by uh, Daniel Q. Posin, as you say, uh, he was this Russian guy.
2: It, 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 the the cover says he has a PhD. It, 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 takes, it says um, PhD, and then it takes pains to point out that he's a physicist, which is a bit strange. I don't know why physicists would be writing a book about dinosaurs.
1: Yeah, he, uh, he, he was a professor of physics. But, uh, um, he, he was also kind of a television personality. He had his own, uh, he had his own television we show. We know what
0: happens when, when physicists wade in uh, to talk about zoology. It never goes well.
1: <laughs> Sorry, that was <laughs> it's just, a, that's just yeah. a, a
0: cheeky joke on my part. The book's but, all right for yeah. its time. <laughs> yeah. It is, yes. The,
2: the book's a very standard mid-century dinosaur book to my eye. It it has a lot of uh, obvious Zalinger and Knight nods in there, um, particularly nods or yeah, we'll we'll generously call them nods (laughs) to um, Zalinger's work as featured in the Big Golden Book of Dinosaurs, which was published under various guises. So things like the swimming hadrosaur and the uh, walking hadrosaurs on the shore but also not just um, Zalinger but there's a T-Rex on page 25, which looks radically different to the T-Rex on another page, by the way. But it does look very uncannily like um, a T-Rex that features in dinosaurs and other prehistoric animals, which is published in 1959 and written by Darlene Geis, G-E-I-S, and uh, with illustrations by R.F. Peterson. It looks really, really rather like a slightly crude T-Rex that appears in that. So, yeah, there appears to be a bit of a... right. A mix of different influences in here. There's definitely some knights in there as well.
1: Yeah, there would be, wouldn't there?
2: The Allosaurus, obviously, is very knight. It can be hard to say because, of course, knights was based on the A and H mount, and you could argue so is this. It's not necessarily a direct copy. The other hand it does look quite a bit like knights. The head has that kind of weird... Actually, the head in this is particularly unusual. It's it's simplified. It doesn't have the horns. But it also has this, like the eyes sort of raised above the level of the rest of the skull. Well, it's just very lizard-like, really. It's, quite, it's interesting. It's interesting that, in that it's very obscure, but in other ways, it is a very, very typical book of its time with lots of, as I said, obvious Zalinger and Knight um, references, and also maybe to a few other popular books at the time. Also, the crocodile on page 13 is a Phytosaur.
1: Yeah, that's definitely a Phytosaur. It? Yeah, mm. I spotted that. Changed my mind. Yes. It's quite so. I'm
0: just puzzled by the the very different um, depiction of the T-Rex here, which uh, you also pointed out in your previous uh, blog posts about them, Niels. I'm just puzzled by how they both came to be in the same book, given how different they are.
1: Well, there's there's three actually.
0: Oh, there are three. Oh, of course there are. Yes. Oh, yes. Because the ones in the. Uh, in the illustration with all the other animals, the stew,
1: as you called them, I believe. Yeah, and there, there is, as you say, quite a lot of difference between the three of them.
2: Yeah, it's puzzling that to me. Well, you see this quite a bit in old books, um, especially with T-Rex for some reason, but also sometimes with other animals as well. And it's usually because they've, they're copied from different sources, and the artist hasn't bothered that much to tweak them to make them consistent. So either that or these are artworks that were actually produced at different times, and they've just been, you know, amalgamated but i don't know i get the impression sometimes i don't think
1: that's the case i think this was all illustrated specifically for this book yeah that's my impression as well Well, in
2: that case i would say then that it's probably the case that these have just been copied or mm, inspired by different sources um so hence the rather radically differing interpretations as i said there is that particular weird skulking one that does very much look like um an illustration in dinosaurs and other prehistoric animals which is for a couple of years prior albeit flipped but yeah, it's that. It's a very peculiar and very specific posture that it's adopting. And the crude nature of its head in particular is very, very similar. Although I quite like the background in that one. There's some nice stuff going on there. The uh, the rain clouds, it's almost impressionistic. And so sort of minimal foliage. Yeah, And mountains. The, the footprints it leaves behind. Yeah, they're quite neat. But yeah, again, very typical in that foliage mostly consists of palms and sort of yeah ferny fronds and you've got um large areas of sort of scrubby desert (laughs) and what's going on um by the way i love the little it's on i'm not sure which page but basically it's a scene where you have what looks like a tyrannosaur in the foreground with with some hadrosaurs sauropods in the you know in the water and there's a little blue guy in the lower middle (laughs) I actually love him. Oh, what, yeah, what, right. What's going on with him? <laughs> what's going on with his, <laughs> his legs? Yeah, he has it's, those gangly, awkward looking legs. Wonderfully
0: wiry little puppet.
2: Yeah, he does look like he's have a little like uh, that
1: That's the big anachronism stew scene because you've got T Rex, you've got Stegosaurus. Yes, that's right. Yes, You've got uh, sauropods, you've got hadrosaurs.
2: Anachronism, Stu, and the scale seems to be a bit all over the place. So that stegosaurus is clearly behind, or quite some way behind, the hadrosaurs, which look like edmontosaurs, and yet the stegosaurus is comparatively massive, um, and the the sauropods look Mm -hmm. tiny. Yes. They could be, they they could be juvenile sauropods, but it just seems to lack an impression of depth slightly, perhaps, and a sense of proper perspective. I feel like I'm being unkind, though. I mean, technically, it's quite nice. I quite like the style. Again, it does remind me a lot of other books from around that time, like Dinosaurs and Other Prehistoric Animals. And there are a few others I can mention from sort of the 60s um, that have a similar style.
0: I remember you mentioning in your blog posts, Niels, that um, it's rare to see a depiction of a hadrosaur actually in the water swimming as opposed to just wading through a swamp. Yeah but i also you mentioned you singled that one out earlier mark um and i wondered actually whether whether there were more instances of this because i seem to recall there being more yeah
2: that's definitely heavily inspired by um Zalinger work from the big golden book or um, right right so it was published under a few different names and editions i've i've got an edition of it it's not a big golden book but it has the same artwork in it and yeah there's a swimming um I think it's a carithosaurus and Parasaurolophus together, actually, um, swimming around underwater enjoying themselves. And that was copied on a number of occasions.
0: Of a Hadrosaur party.
2: Yeah, Hadrosaur party, of which this is one. I mean, to be fair, they didn't have many references to go by at the
1: time. Well, you say that. Um, what, what I have neglected to scan, but uh, what is definitely in here, are a number of fairly accurate skeletal diagrams. She was working for the museum, and uh, I imagine she saw a lot of those skeletons. And she drew, for instance, a Gorgosaurus skeleton from life, a Camptosaurus, um, a sauropod. It all looks very good. Okay. Yeah. So it's kind of strange to me. It's it's kind of the Normanpedia problem. You have all these fairly accurate skeletal diagrams. Why weren't they used as reference for the actual artwork? Mm. Well,
2: I guess then it's a yes. it's a philosophical thing. So... The entire point of the dinosaur renaissance and the Greg Paul approach to paleo art is it was, it was so revelatory compared to what people did before, which was not really bothering to, you know, use the skeletons as a base to build up their reconstructions. I mean, even Charles Knight, who was um, a master of anatomy, particularly when it came to, I mean, he literally wrote the book <laughs> on illustrating animal anatomy, which is still referred to to this day. And yet when it comes to his dinosaurs, they often ignore various, well, actually quite a lot about the skeletons. Um, famously, you know, theropod skulls are smoothed over, he ignores muscle attachment points on the bones, uh, makes their limbs really lizardy, Uh And it's, he's kind of like he's fitting a preconceived idea of what these animals should be rather than going by the skeletons. I think it's just a philosophical difference between how people were doing things back then. Now we expect our reconstructions to be inherently based on the skeletons, to be built up upon the skeletons as a base, and then, you know, taking into consideration the musculoskeletal anatomy and all that stuff. Whereas back then, it was things were a lot more uh, loose. <laughs> so <laughs> basic, basically, you could just copy Zellinger and then be
1: done. Oh, all right, then. So what if we don't judge um, a book from the 60s by modern standards? How does this hold up for something of the time? It's not bad.
2: As I said it's fairly typical, really.
1: Yeah, I think that's the key aspect right there. It...
0: Um... Uh, if you were to summarize it um, very briefly, it would be that this book is very much of its period. And in that sense, um, it's a shame, really, because there's almost nothing else to distinguish it. Um, it makes it seem almost unremarkable, which is quite unfair to Weber, Um and you said, Niels, um, that uh, her work on drawing fossil material is so much more accomplished. And you can see that, for instance, in the illustration of the, uh, uh, as you described it, the then Brontosaurus with the Camarasaur head. Yeah. Um, and that's a direct illustration of the mount, isn't it? And, uh, and you can see there, that that's, that's a beautiful illustration. Come on. And that that really sets this one apart from all of the others in this book. Oh, it's my favorite in the book by far. Yes, and, and mine too, for all those reasons. Um, so it's, it's obvious, even just from looking at this book, that, uh, that Weber was uh, absolutely accomplished. Um, but it, it makes it a frustrating experience for me, because um, whether owing to the uh, fashion, if you will, of not being rigorous at the time. Um, her choice in not using uh, this skeletal structure uh, to inform her illustrations is, is a little frustrating to me, and it's made more so by the fact that what little I have seen of her work outside of this book, um, particularly the work that she did for the Chicago Field Museum, those sculptures and paintings showcase the best of her abilities, and they are far and away more accomplished than her illustrations for this book. I don't know to what extent this was owing to, uh, to the, the the idea that it was just a children's book, and, and therefore needn't. Uh, the rigor that is required is not necessary, right. maybe. I don't know.
2: Yeah, I do wonder about that, and also also because um, life reconstructions of dinosaurs were often not seen as a, you know, as being something serious, illustrating the fossils, the bones that you can really see. That was serious, <clears> and hence the amazingly detailed uh, illustration yeah. of that apatosaur, uh, brontosaur, is it apatosaur as well? Whatever. The sauropod mount is <laughs> amazingly illustrated, um, all the detail in that, because, of course, that is um, a serious subject, whereas life reconstructions were seen as often as being more frivolous. And that's sometimes still the case. Like a lot of paleontologists don't really care even now. I mean, it's it's less so now because we've had paleontologists growing up in the Renaissance era themselves. Um, so things, they're now, life reconstructions are being taken more seriously now and they care about it more. But still, you do have still have quite a few people who don't really regard them as anything other than kind of a frivolity where it doesn't matter, you know, the, the real things are the bones, the real things are the fossils. So we don't need to worry that much about the, the life reconstructions. You know, they can just be,
1: Yeah, I know a few of them.
2: (laughs) No no comment. (laughs) Yeah, I suppose. But but that that actually was more prevalent back then than it is now, because obviously they were working in the pre-Renaissance times. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, and I I think that is reflected here in the contrast Mm. between the life instructions and the illustrations of fossil material. Also, what is that thing on page forty-five? It looks like a ground sloth, and what's a ground sloth doing in the
1: Mesozoic? Oh,
0: it's <laughs> a question I have to. A real odd one out there, um, the ground sloth. Yeah, it,
1: it, I scanned it because the text there cracks me up. Um, many scientists believe. <clears throat> I'm going to going to do an old timey radio voice here. Many scientists <laughs> believe that other things, including diseases, may have helped destroy dinosaurs. The development of a group of animals called mammals may also have been partly the cause of the disappearance of dinosaurs. Mammals have better protection against cold than dinosaurs. They are warm-blooded. Their bodies remain warm even in very cold places. Mammals also have better brains than dinosaurs. <laughs> Take that!
2: Some of these mammals probably ate dinosaur eggs and young dinosaurs. Or should I do it in a cranky Pathé News voice?
1: Some of these mammals
2: probably ate dinosaur eggs and young dinosaurs.
1: There you go. Hello, Brian Ford.
2: Hello, I am Brian Ford. Blah, blah, blah. Aquatic.
1: Biffle, puffle,
0: riffly The text itself is, is also quite no- noteworthy for being very much of its period. And again, um, uh, yeah. showing the same sort of, um, I guess, the same sort of laissez-faire attitude to creating a book for children in that it's, some of the tone is, is quite condescending actually.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's quite and, condescending, uh,
0: actually. <laughs> yes,
2: actually. <laughs> it has got every trope going from that time, which is adorable. Um, like the brontosaurs, they just sit in water, they don't have to move, they just move their heads around, suck up water weeds, and then when they come to the land, they're vulnerable to being attacked by anything because they're just absolutely defenseless. I love that. It's, it's classic sort of 50s, 60s dinosaur book stuff. Can't get enough of it. And yeah, the, the superior mammals and all
0: that, you know, just it's just very, very typical. But uh, you were going to say something else in defense of the book, Niels. Yeah, go on, Niels. I think I think you should be allowed to do that, given that we are kind of being pretty harsh about we're it. ripping it apart.
1: <laughs> I think apart from providing a, a very interesting time capsule into, you know as we have established a radically different time for dinosaur research and dinosaurs in popular culture. I do think there is a character to these illustrations that you just can't replicate, that is entirely hers and not carried over from Zalinger or Knight. That's true. And when I say that, I'm looking, for instance, at the Brontosaurus uh, on the title page. I am looking at the Stegosaurus, I am looking at the Triceratops. The triceratops. And I do think yes. there, is a, there is a personality to them that is, that is hers. Yes. Oh, yeah, they're not just copies. No, you're right. They're, they're not just that traces. is very true.
2: Yeah. <laughs> there's definitely a personality, as you say. Although I, I can still see I can, I can still see a lot of similarities with other, with other artworks. But yeah, it's, there's a great stylistic difference, especially if you look at the, the backgrounds, the clouds. The clouds on page 20 look quite whimsical, even, <laughs> their, their billowiness. Like fluffy marshmallows, it, it is it's very neat. I mean, yeah, these definitely—you couldn't accuse these of being uh, direct tracings or copies, but they are nevertheless heavily inspired by uh, by prior art. But then that was that was just the norm at the time. Like there was so little for people to work with um, that there was a tendency to just thought um, rep- replicate then heavily, <laughs> heavily base your work on the work of um, prior artists. What,
1: what's your thoughts on the on the stegosaurus? I really like that one. It's 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 really vibrant. It really pops.
0: Yes. And I do like your description, Niels, um, when you said that it looks as though it's actually trying to force its tail downwards <laughs> in order to fit in with the the tail-dragging um, uh, trope of the time. Uh, and if it were to relax, it would spring back up. Um, it does have that uh, that sort of impression.
2: Yeah. yeah, it really does. It really does look like the tail should just... Although I'm not sure if that's just our modern biases but yeah it does look
0: like... i think yes i think it's very much our modern bias
2: <laughs> but I mean, I see what you mean though it does look very muscular it looks like it should uh yeah. it's quite taut yeah yeah exactly yeah I-, I love the ankylosaurus
1: yeah that that one's that one's great too I- I-
2: that's just the classic mid-century ankylosaurus with like stumpy tiny legs it's like dachshund ankylosaurus i've
1: had so many toys that look like that yeah
2: well the uh Impro one it looks like that. So it's this tiny stumpy thing with spikes sticking out the sides. It's what I used to call the angry pineapple because it doesn't really have any neck or much in the way of legs. It's just sort of <laughs> a pineapple shape with spiky bits coming out of it, and uh, yeah, a tail club. And the shortened tail, which is what is that based on um, some other ankylosaur, isn't it? Oh, God, is it the uh holotype? It's probably scolosaurus. Yeah, because the tail was cut off, and they thought that was the end of the tail, so they just stuck a club. I
1: in. think. I think again, you can see uh, you can see the night influence there. But the, the thing with Knight, it's all there, right? Because if you look again at the uh, life, as it were, reconstruction of the sauropod skeleton, do you see what's in the background there? Yeah, Charles Knight. Yes, the <laughs> famous painting. His, uh, T-Rex. Yeah, exactly. I, I imagine yeah. that's exactly what the Field Museum looked like at the time. I, I love
0: the uh, the guy in his green coat, by the way. <laughs> yes. I do understand, and I completely take your point, Niels, um, about the characterful dinosaurs in here and they do very much show her signature and uh, my harshness about this book such as it is again comes only from uh, my frustration with this book itself with what I think is a a poor representation of uh, Mighty Weber's work which is miles above this I can only hope that with, with our wider and more concentrated effort now and shining a light on the, the underrepresented, that the Chicago Field Museum might be persuaded, perhaps, to resurface uh, her works, um, which uh, she did for the museum in their collections, uh, resurface them for public view. And I think it would be wonderful if we could have, as with uh, Marie Hubrecht, um, uh, if we could have a new publication uh, with with some of Viva's works, which would give it the real representation that it deserves because um it's it still feels such a shame to me that what we know of it in 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 uh, the public domain should be represented so far in in published form by this book because it does her such poor justice that's that's really my overriding feelings about it
2: yeah, I want to see more of it as i said i wasn 't that impressed by this because it's, it's quite a typical book of the time but from what you said it's just some like an intriguing character somebody whose work i'd like to seek out a lot more of just so so today i'm speaking with the world famous co-author of walking with dinosaurs the evidence darren naish hello and thank you for having me who's also a scientist and blogger and author and illustrator and science communicator and um beard and various other things, no end to Darren's talents. Many people will tell you, I'm sure, um, including, obviously, your um, podcast buddy, John Conway.
3: Oh, him, yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he's very complimentary of your various uh, <laughs> your various talents. So um, oh, yeah. you've obviously been incredibly busy, as ever, <laughs> in the last year. Um, but coming out of um, the horrible crisis that we've all been through, um, you've had a new book published very recently. You've been involved in several papers, in museum exhibitions. Um, no doubt, you've continued with your advisory role in various things. In fact, the only thing you haven't done recently is release a new um, episode of the Tetsu podcast. Um, but that's okay. No,
3: no, no time for it. I've Given up on it. You've given up on it. We, we can't. We can't ever make time for it ever. So I, I don't think we're ever doing it ever again. You heard it here first. It's a world exclusive.
2: Well, exclusive. I mean, that's a really, really. It's a real shame. That's a horrible exclusive. It's like
3: what exclusive? The Tetsu
2: podcast is never coming back ever again.
3: (laughs) Oh well. In solidarity, this should be your last episode. (laughs) Yes,
2: in solidarity, we must end this um, podcast forthwith. um, With apologies to Niels. on a high, yeah, and Natty. It's 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 the final episode, Darren's interview in which he drops the bombshell of um, the Tetsu podcast being over. But of course the Tetsu blog carries on anyway, and um you've had ZoomCon te- Zoom Con again this year. Um sadly mm-hmm. I was not able to attend. But I gather went very well. Lots of great speakers again. Do you think do you actually do you think that uh, you'll next year if you can you'll go back to an in person event or are you too fond of the um Zoom format, web webcasting now? Yeah,
3: it's a good it's a good question. Well, Our government's plans demand that COVID will be in full fury next year. So whether we actually are prepared to take the risk and have space meetings. I mean, um, we hoped that we would have one this year. And I think that if we work on the sort of timetable, you know, as as per normal years, then um, we probably can look forward to having a physical meeting kind of like you know september october 2022 yeah. uh, if that does happen I, i'm kind of you know i'm thinking that it's got to happen i think by summer we've got a bang on on things us attending meetings and stuff like olden times but um we probably will continue to, to do a zoom based meeting as well just because it's it's not that difficult i mean it's difficult but not as difficult as physical meetings and it also gives um yeah a a much more international feel i'm really happy with the number of people that have been able to join from all around the world so we probably will do both
2: okay i mean yeah if you could do both that would be spectacular i'm sure i mean as you say it's true that um the zoom meetings do allow much more international participation Uh, obviously people not being limited by having to show up in london (laughs) um an awkward time Hmm. so yeah that is true um okay well, sad news about the podcast, um, but good news about the future TetsuCon plans. So that's something. Um, yeah. So this is this will be out already for a few months by the time this podcast goes out. But I do want to talk about the Dinopedia. First of all, how mm-hmm. on earth did you get it published? Because um, I know you say you say in the book itself that originally it was purely going to be about sort of the culture surrounding dinosaur science more than the science itself but then you found that you had to keep using all these terms and referring to things and you thought how is anyone other than like you know the nerdiest nerds like us how how are people who are not real dinosaur enthusiasts going to understand this at least um so then you of course you inserted all the scientific stuff as well but i'm still it still seems like an awfully esoteric book to get picked up by anyone (laughs) so i'm wondering how did this happen in the first place
3: I get asked questions like this a lot, like why did you decide to write that book? And the answer is always, in my experience, well, a publisher came to me and said, "Can you write this book for us?" And I was like, "Can you pay me?" And they're like, "Yeah." So okay, that's there you go, sign a contract. <laughs> so uh, I didn't write a book. I've okay. Um, uh, my apologies if I sound flippant, or if, or to those you've heard me say this before, but I've come up with you know, on lots of occasions throughout my my career, I've come up with like the idea for a book and then gone round different publishers and never had any success in getting it published and those things die um, and are still unpublished today. The only things I've been successful with, nearly only things I've been successful with, are when publishers come to you because they're aware of your body of work and say, hey, we're doing this, do you want to be in on it? You say, yeah. So this uh, uh, Princeton University Press have got this uh pedia series running and uh, they came up with like a list of i don't know about five titles they thought they should do that would like have mass appeal um and uh, one of them they thought hey we should do one on dinosaurs robert kirk the series editor already knew of me because of um, work i'd done um uh, with um Indiana University Press so with a, a book chapter I wrote for The Complete Dinosaur 2 and um, thought, I know who could do Dinosaur 1 that Darren Nash guy, He's, he can just about write, so <laughs> he said would you be interested in this? I said I don't know what kind of things you have in mind, they sent me Fungipedia, and I absolutely love Fungipedia, it's a brilliant book so Dynapedia is based on Fungipedia so it's not me coming up with my own design or idea for a book it's me no. doing dinosaurs in the vein of the fungipedia and uh, as you've already touched on, and as I say in the preface, I um yeah, I kind of did imagine something a bit more. Like how do you how, the the whole uh, you know sort of subtext for this series is popular lore about a subject, and you could say we do have popular lore about dinosaurs because people yeah. do exchange, you know, yeah, there's there's a degree of sort of pop culture interface, obviously. And I, I first mm-hmm. of all wanted to do that. I mean, it would have been. It would have overlapped massively with the stuff you guys cover on the blog, but well, as as you've already said, I ended up finding that I couldn't write sections on David Norman's adventures and <laughs> David Lambert's books and jo- the artwork of John Civic. and that, that seriously, I had entries planned on all those things. Yeah, you know, the Orbis part work, there was going to be uh, yeah, like, entries really? and all that sort of thing. Because I'm I'm dead serious. Yeah, I've still got drafts <laughs> for that kind of stuff. But it ended up being like, yeah. If I mention and he illustrated Carnotaurus in this way. Wait a minute, what's Carnotaurus? You know, and, and before you know it, every single book I've ever done, of course, is vastly limited by size and word count, and it's not. I personally don't find it difficult to write thirty thousand words on dinosaurs. <laughs> and by the time you've done that, that's your book. That's your book done. Right? No, no section on David Lambert, and whatever for you. So the things in Mm. there that survive and aren't about particular, you know, clades or what have you um, are like, you know, I I was thinking today about the, the age of reptiles mural, the Zalinger mural. Yeah. They're the relics of what was uh, previously a more extensive kind of pop culture version of the book. I mean, Greg Paul is in here. Uh, So you have a few specific artists,
2: um, scientists, obviously backer is in here. Um, Horner is in here. Richard Owen, um, that movie is in here, which is inevitable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you have to mention that. Although Walking with Dinosaurs isn't, is it, as I recall? Um, I'm just looking through it now. Um, it's not. no. You skip no. straight from Tyrannosaurus Rex to Wielden.
3: It would have been in there, again, if I... Walking with Dinosaurs yeah.
2: had not quite as much of an impact on the popular culture as Jurassic Park, but not that far off. I mean, in terms of how it affected the books that were being published in the early two thousands and the kind of artwork that they used in particular. Something that um I talked about with Steve White, as you can imagine. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, everyone suddenly wanted obviously there were a slew of imitators and everyone wanted this kind of CG artwork in their books and it really influenced people's perception. Um so it was it was a highly important part of the popular culture. But then of course Jurassic Park more so and you had to you had to decide what was going to go in here, you had to decide what to eliminate. Um, I think you, you did reach a good balance in the end. I mean, there are also some more sort of esoteric um, hypotheses in here. Like, uh, I mean, the, the fact that you've included birds and or dinosaurs in here was really intriguing to me. Well, just because it was such a massive controversy and uh, because you had so many well-published and well-respected you know, authorities in their own fields actually arguing the case, um, not naming anyone, Alan Fiducia, who um, you might mention in the book. Did you include that just because it was such a big deal? Um, and impacted upon popular culture so much um
3: yeah um uh, no no mark uh, no. that's not why include. why cla- <laughs> no, no i mean <laughs> i make i make no apologies for the fact as I, as I i think i say in the book that you know it's entirely esoteric it's uh so you know i've i've got to make the the judgment call at the end of the day what am I going to include in here and the answer is what did I find interesting so um and if i what if i I aimed to find, you know, to try and find some kind of balance between, you know, appropriate phylogenetic coverage with a smattering of biographical stuff about people that, you know, you could say have have influenced the modern view of dinosaurs. And then a little bit of pop pop culture stuff, a little bit of behavioral stuff. I'm absolutely like aware of and paranoid about the fact that people will say, oh, who cares about the birds come first hypothesis or so who cares about birds and not dinosaurs that just that's just like some weird little you know two or three i mean birds come first in there and there's only like one researcher who ever wrote about that you know george Roshevsky. it's not yeah. well known it hasn't had an impact it's not covered like you know widely in the literature it's never had an influence on you know uh, mainstream thinking if i can use that term uh, but i included it because i thought it was interesting and i i know I, my mm-hmm. philosophy these days as someone who's becoming increasingly old and bitter is uh, <laughs> hey don't tell me what i'm supposed to be interested in if i find it interesting god damn it, other people are going to find it interesting as well so uh there you I go yeah am... <laughs> I, I want that as the byline
2: <laughs> on the book <laughs> damn it i'm old and bitter you'll find this interesting because i did if you don't i don't care um that's right, it from the author that should have been your preface yes It was actually quite an enjoyable aspect of the book for me because I did read it sitting, mostly sitting in a pub, um, having a few pints, just pouring through it. And it was kind of, I I didn't, I sort of didn't want to spoil it for myself. So I didn't sort of flick ahead and see what kind of things it included because it was fun to just see what you can include next. Um, You know, so we go from quite (laughs) standard sort of um, descriptions of different clades like allosaurs and, um, you know, brachiosaurs and so on. Then suddenly you've got um, birds come first. And then later on, you've got the dinosauroid. I mean, of course, you've got the dinosauroid. How could you not include dinosauroid? Mm. This, um, this is something of a fascination of yours. Um,
3: well, so... <laughs> well, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But let me let me say again, it's like, uh, the point I'm making. The book is that I'm I'm kind of thinking, um, like what things, what factors have basically constructed the view of dinosaurs that we've got today. And as I say in the book, I I do think that. I think for, for like you know sort of those trendy young millennial people that mm-hmm. like anything pre two thousand is considered old, but in terms of like where we are at now with dinosaurs, what's happened that's totally brand new since two thousand I mean we found like endless new species, but the view of dinosaurs the view of the of the mesozoic world that you've got now is a view that was constructed during the seventies eighties and nineties so yeah. look at the literature, you know you know the most of the stuff that that you lot cover at Love and the Time of Caspersaurs is actually... I'd be really interested to see it, you know, as a graph. It's probably mostly from that time, isn't it? Seventies, eighties, nineties, probably. I mean, this... the formative stuff that you that you're always talking about, you never shut yeah. up about. Is, is from that time, and I would... the
2: availability of books from that time does have something to do with it. On eBay, other <laughs> places. Obviously, it's much well, harder to get hold yeah. of books that are older than that. There are a lot of books from that time. Then, of course, that could be a result of the glut of research and interest generated during that period.
3: I think so. I think there's a huge surge of um, literature at that time which is partly to do with like generational turnover time it's partly sort of a socio-economic thing it's Mm. it's partly because it is genuinely an exciting time it's like because all these really cool ideas are coming together and although we talk about the dinosaur renaissance happening in the, the late 60s its repercussions aren't really kind of like explored and and sort of made more mainstream really like until the 80s you know Great yeah paul artwork in every single book and stuff and yeah. in those books that that we have in mind you know the normanpedia and whatever like th- come 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 up with like a list of 10 things that are in every one of those books and the dinosauroid is one of them so even if i had no real interest in the dinosauroid and obviously i do i would still think that it's like it's like one of the key characters you sort of can't escape from it that is a good point it's like it does tom cruise of the dinosaur world it's like it's
2: <laughs> always there another aspect of this book which is uh fairly unique among the books that you've published um it's full of your illustrations um so which are actually rather nice um I, i'm just looking at the uh, thank you dianonychus now on page 53 and it does look rather like the wild safari um model you may wonder if you're looking at it
3: <laughs> that's <laughs> enti- no, it's entirely coincidental entirely course. coincidental no, no, it is entirely coincidental. Okay, yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just, oh, but, well, I'm looking at the safari. Oh my god, it does look a bit like it. Yeah, the tail. I had not the, the tail
2: cool. bends down like that.
3: Um, nah, that is a hundred percent coincidental. Okay. Yeah, I, I didn't didn't look at the model. It's
2: obvious. Why you would have given it tail feathers like that? And obviously, safari did too, because that's known from natural theropods. So that kind of thing. So um, makes sense. Yep. Also, in the last episode, it's going to be old hat by now. Uh, <laughs> we talked about the. This dinosaurs in the Isle of one, um, one of mm. which is uh, Reparovator Milneray, and the other one is the um, yep. horn-headed crocodile-faced hell heron. Um, Close. So first of yep. all, well, or the or the horny-headed. I mean, it didn't have a horn. It had a like a rugose area, like a boss, right? Um, yep, but yep. yeah, but it was a crocodile face, and it, um, it was a hell heron, a heron from hell. Um, but. Yeah, you you did post about this on Tetsu, but you didn't really talk that much. You said you were involved with it from the beginning, but didn't really go into much detail on there about it, um, mm-hmm. what your involvement was. Because obviously there are several authors on that paper, including you and Dave Hone and um, Barker and Et al and Cow, um, a few others. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> apologies to the others <laughs> I've forgotten. <laughs> so, but yeah, I mean, what what is your involvement in this from like from the off in a you know a thousand words or less? <laughs>
3: uh, uh, yeah yes yeah. so with that with that caveat in mind these dinosaurs these two individuals literally have been discovered over the space of about you know five years mm. so it was like wow these are baryonyx type dinosaurs this is probably baryonyx probably baryonyx Walkeri. eye so uh back then my plan was to just write them up as two new specimens of baryonyx and then do morphometrics on the teeth my thinking was these will probably plot in like a different sort of area of morphospace relative to baryonics walker Ian, could be different species so that was so that's like a tiny study and that the plan was for like that literally to be like a, a three-page paper with one graph and some photos of bones but then you know i i wasn't aware that this substantial amount of um one of them um had like uh specifically of uh uh, ripper of had been dis- like loads more material had been uh had been discovered including like a this like semi-articulated near complete tail and stuff obviously it's kind of almost impossible
2: to determine whether they were actually living um alongside one another because one of them was on the beach in bits and the other one was in the uh in the cliff um but yeah, and, and also you talk about um, ontogenetic changes um, among theropods and how it's not really known for spinosaurs, um, but nevertheless, these two look to be closer to sucumimus than baryonyx. And if we're counting sucumimus as a separate genus to baryonyx, which most people still do, it's still like, you know, it hasn't been really definitively sunk by anyone, um, then these could be regarded as their own genera, which is all, it's all interesting. And it all it brings, of course, the question lots of, uh, you know, ideas about, dinosaur ontogeny and the changes i mean i did uh quote the specific bit in the podcast which isn't out yet i think it's be out tomorrow uh about because you talk about t-rex <laughs> specifically um you've got to put t-rex in there somewhere that will then um, mm-hmm. yeah that's just it's mm-hmm. for the clickbait um i'm trying to find the quote but i said where did this bit out but you just mentioned the ontogeny and T-Rex and how they change so much. And yeah, you just yep. can't really, ultimately, although you can't really tell, um, you know, with 100% certainty, you are fairly confident on you in the differences that are there between um, the material and you can see, and it's enough. That, that you'd ordinarily say um, that they're two separate genera. They're different enough, um, and they're and they're close to Sucomimus and Baryonyx in many respects. Uh, well, in some respects. So, yeah. But that whole discussion was very interesting to me. Just the fact that, um, I mean, that's kind of how science works, isn't it? So, so you have to uh, be cautious.
3: <clears throat> you've you, you've posed about fifteen questions there, but the uh, the bottom <laughs> the bottom line. It's okay. The bottom line is you know how do we draw scientific conclusions how how, how do we how do we decide you know what we're going to report scientifically and it's we work we work with the evidence we have so a really common um response to a study like this and specifically to this study is for people to say things like oh but couldn't they be the same species if dot 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 you know if one uh turns on genetically into the other or if they're contemporaneous if they're sexual dimorphs, and so well those things aren't off the table we specifically say in the paper you know that we can't exclude the possibility that 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 they might be any of those things they might be the same species there might be you know examples of interest specific variation of whatever kind the problem is with the with the data that we have with the the specific points of evidence that we have having tested those possibilities they didn't well matched they didn't like they weren't good explanations for what we saw so the things that make them different is a list of like um like detailed things at the back of the skull that in other theropods aren't the ones that appear to be subjected to ontogenetic variation it's like why do they have these difference in you know these little technical details or the the contribution of the exoccipital bones to the um occipital condyle or how long the sulky are on the back of the basisphenoid you know why do they why do they differ in those specific things because again they can't be easily just pushed under the carpet as like ah no nah, that, that's just that's just because they're different sexes or cuz they're you know ontogenetic stages of the same animal and then uh finally for now um the other thing you mentioned is uh yeah if one of them is found as loose blocks on the sh- on the on the foreshore so we can't say exactly where it is in stratigraphy so if people say oh couldn't they be the same species couldn't they be different sexes whatever so well you can you you can make a good case for that if you can establish that your two specimens are contemporaneous. know literally lived alongside one another. We can't make that argument here. They yes, they could have been contemporaneous, sympatric, but um, we don't know that. And you know, we've also got it's equally likely that they're actually separated by some span of time. And you know, what do I mean by that? Who knows? Centuries, <laughs> millennia, <laughs> yeah. millions of years.
2: I wanted to ask you about um, some future stuff because, especially because. I spoke to Steve White, as I mentioned, and we were talking about Mesozoic arts, which you're involved in. Um, You weren't involved in the others, of course. You weren't involved in the dinosaur art books. Um, Oh, yes, I was.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I was a consultant on those. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Okay. You were an author and editor on those. You're a consultant. No, no, I'm Um, not. I'm Steve's
3: wingman, if you check the uh, the small print. Oh, he's he's wingman. Okay. So you you did have a consultant. I'm
2: serious. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, i'm sure you are but you did uh, okay so, so as ever there is um you should be a consultant on like every popular dinosaur book going these days but um but you, but you weren't an editor or an author in those but you are in meterzoic art oh, you're more heavily involved um along with steve yeah did you have a substantial say in who the artists were that were going to be involved in this along with steve um presumably you did Yep. yeah yeah so and i gather you're you were trying to focus more on, or Steve said, you're trying to focus more on up and coming talent that you really wanted to highlight, as well as having a few people in there who had been in previous volumes.
3: Yeah, I mean, so first of all, it's a different publisher. So although yeah. none of us can help imagining it as like you know the third in a trilogy or something, it's not really. We kind of have to. It's not really. Yeah, we kind of have to think of it as like an, an entirely new project. So um yeah, a n- new publisher. So so Steve gets a get set up with a with a new publisher and the deal is that i don't know why but you can do it. You, you do it get that darren nash guy on board and we've got a deal basically so uh, so we do so it's a kind of mi- a mix of um we want a very attractive kind of cutting edge book that is like this is the bulk of the sort of dialogue that's happening in paleo art Right now, which automatically, you know, I'm going to regret saying that because it because if there's people that you don't have in there, this sort of feels as if they're being deliberately excluded, which they're absolutely not. I mean, again, you know, you can't have everyone. You can't do everything. You can't have everyone. So, So we didn't want to so much cover. So although we still like and respect, you know, the the grand old men, if if I may, of paleo art, they <laughs> are not all men, but you know what I mean? There's, you mm-hmm. know, you, you, your civics and your Mark Hallett's or whatever, you can't have the same set of people again, or you'll just end up with a book that's like, what to a modern audience might be, paleo art of ages past, the, 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 90, the ancient age of the 1990s, <laughs> dim and distant age that's, you know, forgotten in the past. Now we don't, we didn't want that. So, but yeah, I mean you know from the, the surveys that um the paleo art surveys that, that you've run with um David Orr's compiled them, isn't it? Yeah. The uh like who who are the most influential paleo artists today? It's people like, oh my god, John Conway and like and Mark Whitten and stuff. So if those people are generally regarded as like the movers and shakers, okay, you've got to include those people, but then you also gotta include, you know, the newest, freshest people that now if you if you're using sort of, you know, young new talent you have to be um kind of it's a a very difficult decision you have to make in that we all know that it's very very difficult if not impossible to make a living in paleo art and that someone mm-hmm. can be all of a sudden for like a year or even five years they can be everywhere but they're actually not doing so well and after that couple of years you know i'm i, I, I feel bad for saying this but you know they dropped off the scene and that's it and they're gone you never see them again this is not uncommon if you think mm-hmm. of i can think of a few names that have been everywhere and um you know now now where are they you can't say they've they've got like a Sort of established published legacy, so it's kind of difficult to know who. You... Uh, I'm really hoping that didn't sound weird and arrogant. I really hope it doesn't, and I hope my point's understood. But um, yeah, yeah, so really. weird to decide. <laughs> yes, it does sound weird and arrogant. No, right? no not at all. No, I mean, it
2: wasn't arrogant. It was just, yeah, people come and go for their own reasons, they disappear, and that's just how it is. I mean, it's yeah. not arrogant on your part. All
3: right, yeah, so we've got to have people that, like, it seems they're going to be sticking around for a while, and their work is just so good that, oh my god, we've got to got to cover them and they're and they're adding something new in some way so we're acutely aware of the fact that some of the people that are doing the newest and most exciting work aren't necessarily focused on dinosaurs but if you think of um i mean a thing that i think about a lot i was writing about it just today actually is um when i think of prehistoric animals i'm mostly interested in animals in their environment mostly interested in animals in the landscape because it's got that frisson of wildlife art about it. I'm actually probably really bored by just like an animal on a white background. Don't care what the animal is. It's a white background, just not interested. So if you think of this kind of like style of portraying animals in interesting landscapes, and now think of um, how that works for extinct animals, I would say that there's a list of people who are doing... Um, uh you know non-mesozoic animals before and after the mesozoic and even speculative animals as well and they kind of tick those boxes you can look at a scene and say yeah that looks like something that um brian frankzak or you know mark hallett or you know would have would have done at one time it ticks those boxes so our our kind of philosophy as steve and i was uh if it sort of feels like it could be like a Mesozoic style of art, then uh, <laughs> then uh, it's it's good to include. So uh, that's kind of our thinking. And I was inspired in particular by a photo taken by a um, a remote camera in Alaska that showed like some wolverines coming down to drink. Uh, at the edge of a lake and some magpies were in the scene as well so it's modern day it's a modern scene with wolverines and magpies and looking at that scene i know i'm not the only one that immediately thought that's just like one of those dinosaur pictures where they got a couple <laughs> of like you know tyrannosaurs coming down to drink and instead of magpies it's you know i don't know little truodontids or something yeah and um yeah that's kind of where that, um, i'm
2: coming from wildlife photography of the year Let's walk through the gallery and think, that would be really good as paleo art. That would be really good as paleo art. That would be really good as paleo art. It's like all these interesting wildlife shots, and especially animals interacting with one another in their environment. And you can't help but imagine, wow, that'd be really good. Yeah, there's um, no shame in that. Yeah, with tyrannosaurs
3: there's no shame.
2: I I could talk all day, but I think we've probably talked enough because it's going to
3: be a lot to work through. So you'll wrap up by saying, and what's next, Darren?
2: Yes, and I'll wrap up by saying, what's next, Darren?
3: Well, Mark, 2021 has been an extraordinarily busy and productive year, but 2022 is going to be even worse. Um, So from probably summer next year, there could well be something quite interesting and relevant that happens, dot, dot, dot. And I also hope next year that I will have published another book. And it's not on dinosaurs, but it is on animals of the Mesozoic. That swim and are reptiles, and uh, okay, yeah. And there's more Isle of Wight spinosaur material to be published. Yep, that is not joking. At the paper, yeah, well, yeah. it's in the paper. You mentioned it. Oh, oh, well, yeah, yeah, there's there's yeah, um, and obviously, hint? there's of course, there's, yeah, and there's eotiranus as well. So, yeah, <laughs> eotiranus,
2: you say, <laughs> mm. intriguing, but um, the one thing we all want to know is is dinosaurs in the wild ever going to come back? Is it going to come back? You must know. You are so heavily
3: involved. I do know. When it's come back. Yeah. yeah. Go on then. Yeah. And I don't, I don't have permission to say anything, <laughs> but um, I'm going to take a small risk and say that yes, it is uh, right. going to be publicly uh, viewable. That's the good news. The bad news, if you live in the UK, is it won't be in the UK. So our plan was always that it would tour the world and um political events of several years ago, let alone uh, mm. COVID related incidents have sort of changed the plan. So I am not gonna kind of mention any places but uh, but yeah there's there's things arranged near and far <laughs> relative to the UK. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah,
2: that's good news. It almost makes up for the cancellation of the Tetsu podcast forever.
3: You know, we'll, I didn't we'll miss say it cancelled forever i said i think i forget what i said but uh
2: you basically said that and, and that, that's now going to be the headline <laughs> um darren reveals tetsu podcast cancelled forever <laughs> no more quoting star wars scripts from length <laughs> thanks very much darren for joining us um for putting up with me for divulging lots of interesting information and your future plans and uh yeah good luck for the coming year thanks <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying here. <laughs> All right.
1: Cheers then. See you later. Bye <laughs> right, bye. Well, it's uh it's good to hear Darren's voice in podcast form again. Because from what I've heard, we won't be hearing much of him uh at least on his own podcast anytime soon. No, unfortunately not. Yeah,
0: he's an extraordinarily
1: busy person. I mean, I completely understand why. Uh, nevertheless, I I am a bit gutted about that. Can't can't deny it.
2: No, I mean, it was uh, the Setsu Podcast that really inspired me to want to be involved in this.
1: Yeah, exactly.
2: Yeah, especially their chaotic nature and facetious tone a lot of the time. Uh, (laughs) That obviously (laughs) inspired me.
1: Yeah, I mean, it seems only yesterday that we talked to him on that podcasting uh, event, although it was a few weeks ago, which I think went really well. And none of us made a fool of ourselves. Hooray. No. But I, I, still, I still feel, I went away thinking um, th- there well, were things
0: I should have said, which I didn't
1: say. Th- then again, s- some people talked rather more than perhaps they should have. Uh, uh. Yes. <laughs> 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 anyway, thanks again to Ilya and uh, Chris for getting us involved with all that. Um, it really was a pleasure. Yes, thank and, you. And uh, thanks to all those who attended. Thanks to all three of you who attended.
2: We we enjoyed seeing this movie.
1: <laughs> so yeah, I think that about wraps it up for this month. Um join us next month when we will have um a big debate. Uh Brian Ford, Alan Fiducia, David Peters, Raymond Hosier, Ken Ham, Willem Engel, Boris Johnson, and Kanye West versus Darren Nash.
0: <laughs> Have Every crank in the world. It'll be one spectacular anniversary offering.
1: We've we've been doing this for a year now. How about that? Yay.
0: That is quite extraordinary, actually. So, uh,
1: thanks to all listeners for sticking with us for our first year. We are um, very humbled, to be honest, to uh, to have yes. made it as far as we have.
0: Absolutely. Yes. Thank you so
1: no, much. No,
2: I'm not humbled. I think I think I totally deserve it for my inane rambling. Um, I, you know, I deserve some kind of inane rambling <laughs> award. <laughs> Nevertheless, I'm grateful for everyone for uh, for sticking around for this so long. <laughs> It seems quite absurd. But thanks. Thank you very much.
1: Next month, that's going to be uh, the first one of the new year. So hopefully we'll see you then. Goodbye, everybody. Thank you so much. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs. You can find all the images and links we discussed today on the podcast show notes on our blog at chasmosaurs.com. You can find us on Facebook at Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs and on Twitter at chasmosaurs. If you want to give us your support, you can leave us a good review on your favorite podcasting platform or consider backing us on Patreon at patreon.com L-I-T-C. Our music is by Rohan Long, who can be found at bandcamp.com slash bronzewing. Stay safe, get vaccinated if you can, and we hope to see you again soon.